Hi, Psychodrama listeners. The following show discusses suicide and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie. And this is Leo. Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm glad to be back to podcasting. We've kind of tried to schedule them when we can, but we, like a lot of people, have a lot of things going on. And so it's nice when there's time for us to come back and record. We do. Yeah, yeah, definitely have. It's, it's been it's been fraught, as you said, by like many people. And, and I know that uh, you've been working on your book, which is something actually exciting that we have in the, in the, in the future. And it's uh, a little bit related to the topic that we have for today. Yep, that's right. My book, The Suicidal Thoughts Workbook, is coming out July 1st. So we are talking about potentially doing a live stream podcast. So stay tuned for details about that when the book comes out. And as we were moving coming out of the of the of the hiatus, we were discussing what, what would be some of the topics that would be interesting for us to re- restart uh, repodcasting. Unfortunately, um, one of the trends that I have been starting as we come out of the pandemic is an increase in mass shootings, uh, which we actually went down significantly during the pandemic. And uh, we thought this would be an interesting topic um, because uh, we both have some expertise in it. Yes, and it's particularly important to talk about what factors might have been in place that could have prevented some of the mm-hmm. mass shootings in case there are things that be, can be carried forward. I mean, one thing that doesn't account for it is that the data seem to suggest that gun sales went up. So it wasn't connected to that, and also that other kinds of shootings that were not mass shootings, uh, they went up or they stayed the same. Right. Yeah. So as we were preparing for the show, we we were talking about these paradoxes that that seem to occur. So we seem to have a period in which, uh, and you mentioned that suicidal ideation increased. Is that that correct, Aidy? So a suicidal ideation increased, but at least according to preliminary data, Mm-hmm. which there's always limitations in looking at suicide, but according to preliminary data, which I'll link to the study in the show notes, there's a suggestion that overdose deaths increased, but suicide mm-hmm. deaths decreased for the second year in a row, mm-hmm. despite mm-hmm. the fact that suicidal ideation went up and that so, gun sales went up. Got it. So compared to 2019, during the, the height of the pandemic in 2020, there was an increase in, we could say, uh, also overdoses, which could be both accidental, but could also be, you know, suicidal attempts, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and but then there's also this kind of dip in actual suicide co- uh, completion, and uh, that's paradoxical, especially given that there's an increase in the number of gun sales, and uh, and thus there will be more um, in previous occasions. There's uh well some data suggests that there's that when there's more availability to means, uh, to lethal means, then there should be a, a corresponding increase in ideation. Sorry, in suicide, in completed suicide. Uh, and co- would you correct me? Is that is that is that a term that would be acceptable that people are gonna use in in the literature? Completed suicide or? It's a bit of something that changes and evolves with time. So right mm. now people typically just say suicide because if some 
if a suicide attempt is incomplete, it suggests that there's that they should have died by suicide or something like that with that language. So people tend to just say suicide rather than mm. completed suicide currently. Okay. Makes sense. Well, all right. Thank you. And so there's this paradox of reduction in suicide, increasing gun sales and, and ammunition, and also increased um, ideation without a corresponding increase in suicide. So what do you what do you make of that? Uh, why why is it that we did not see a, uh, what we would expect a corresponding uh, increase in suicide rates? Well, this is just speculation. I think the truth is that suicide is complex, and we mm-hmm. we don't actually know. But but one potential explanation is that there is some research suggesting during crises certainly like the pandemic, but other types of crises that people sometimes will pull together and feel connected and united during that. Mm -hmm. So for example, sometimes during war times or during a natural disaster, in the short term, people can feel like they're all in it together. And so that can Mm -hmm. sometimes be a bit of a protective factor against suicide. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was suggested in an article that that I'll link to as well was that it's possible that people viewed death as more fearsome and and saw Mm. more meaning in their life Mm. because of the devastating loss of so many people to COVID and how much things have Mm. changed. So it's possible that having more meaning and more connectedness might've prevented people from attempting suicide or dying by suicide, despite Mm. the fact that the distress was up, mental Mm. health problems increased and suicidal ideation went up. So, the, yeah, that's kind of you, you mentioned kind of being together and the sense of belongingness. And I was wondering, this is obviously your area of expertise. And I was wondering if maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, Thomas Joyner's um, theory regarding suicide. You're, you know, you're uh, Thomas Joyner is a very well-known suicidal, uh, suicidologist, right? Yep. yep. And uh, you are one of his foremost, most prominent students. I'm his most prominent student on this podcast on this podcast (laughs) and I I certainly did take a few classes with him but I I think I think it would be interesting oh sorry I meant mentoring if we're talking about that he's ever taught then I'm at least tied for most prominent But I, I really, I thought a lot about it. And when these data started coming out, I, I actually immediately thought about his, his theory, because one of the elements that he proposes are necessary for people to, com- uh, to, in- to complete suicide, is to have this thwarted belongingness. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you can talk a little bit about his theory and how maybe we can use that to weave in and maybe explain some of the, the phenomenology of what we're seeing. Sure. The, the basic gist of his theory is that suicidal desire arises when people feel alone, disconnected from others, and social isolation being alone is a consistent risk factor in the literature for for suicide. If they feel like a burden, so they perceive themselves as a burden, even if their loved ones do not and others do not, but if they feel like others would be better off without them alive, then then those two factors together contribute to desire for suicide, particularly if people, if an individual feels hopeless about ever being able to change that sense of belongingness or mm. feeling like a burden. And the idea is that 
if you have those things, then the desire for suicide will be present. But what we know is that most people who have suicidal thoughts do not die by suicide. So his suggestion is that the people who do are a subset who have the capability for suicide, that we have an innate drive in all Mm -hmm. of us for survival and to fear death and fear Mm -hmm. pain. And so for people to die by suicide, they, by consequence of Mm. their life experiences and their genetics may have a lower fear for suicide and more capability. And another uh, suicidologist, Dr. David Klonsky, has a theory called the the three-step theory of suicide. And he talks about breaking down capability to include an aspect of which Stoiner talks about too, also knowing how to use methods to die by suicide. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so and so that's why it was concerning that at a time of higher distress and higher gun sales that there that there could be an increase in suicide rates. Right. Yeah. And so so basically, you can like to summarize. So you need to have acquired acquired capability, the ability the ability and the desire, you know, the ability to know how to use means and uh, lost your fear for death. And then you feel like you're a burden to others. So you would other people would be better off without you. And you feel alone and isolated and alienated for others. And when you have those three elements, then people's risk for suicide increases dramatically or are more likely to, uh, to, to die by suicide. Um, yes. In and, fact, yeah. I, just saw, I just saw Thomas Joyner do a presentation on this, and he said ABC, alone, burdensome, and capable, was kind of a way to sum, summarize it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that's that's a good i like it that's a good that's a very good uh, acronym so yeah so what i what i thought about is that in during the pandemic maybe uh the b aspect you know that belongingness um was increased so people we we were all you know whether we liked it or not we were stuck with uh loved ones or people who were looking or at least definitely looking out for us and we did have a sense of like there's this threat and we can all get through it together um that perhaps reduce that you know it, re- it removed that b element um from it and maybe that's the reason why we saw uh, a reduction in the number of um uh, in the number of suicides but notably so i think what what becomes then interesting as we start coming out of the pandemic that maybe people start also increasing so they have uh they're, re- they're having a loss of that connection and unfortunately, that also incre- it's, it's a risk factor for people who engage in um, suicidal murders. Uh, and that's the, and I, that's perhaps the, the connection between um, mass shootings and suicide and murder is that there's a subset of people who commit, who die by suicide, um, who, who do it, but also uh, murder people uh, while as... As an as you know, as an aspect of their own suicide, and that is a that's an interesting subset of people, and I'm not sure if uh, if Thomas uh, or you have any ideas about that group. Well, one one thing I, I if you don't mind me mentioning, yeah, no, I should say in the Psychology Today blog post that I wrote about potential speculation about why suicides may have decreased in 2020, I also mentioned that there there were also a lot of people coming together for other reasons outside the pandemic mm. for, uh, for example, Black Lives Matter protests and other uh, activism and, and those kinds of things looking, maybe I, I talked about that maybe that also gave hope to people that there could mm. be change on the horizon, even though mm. it's 
it's stressful. And so that hope sure. aspect of it can can change things as well. And so I just wanted to acknowledge, as we have on, on this podcast, talked about the other significant events in, in 2020. So maybe like it provided a, a sense of purpose and like uh, for people who may have been at risk. So you have this mass movement that it provides a, a sense of purpose or or, or like yeah. open change or? yeah connecting with others hope that there mm. may possibly be a change i also think that i speculate that having some of the government assistance with the stimulus and unemployment and things like that might have helped also mm. give mm-hmm. people some hope that maybe they could get through some of the hardships when they were dealing with those right. and so i think that Maybe some of those factors made a difference. And one thing that I wanted to ask you, because I I should say I uh, I don't know a lot about murder suicides and and kind of the mm. the research behind that, but I wanted to ask you. I, I believe that the number of suicides that involve killing another person is maybe like two percent. It's a small percentage right. of it. Would you, what is the percentage? Do you know of mass shootings defined as you said they were defined different ways but maybe as four people or more that were the perpetrator or the person who is perpetrator is that an okay term Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. um, dies by suicide that's a good question because um you know oftentimes the the perpetrator is um shot by the police but the suggestion is that they may have been seeking to die by police or suicide by cop but uh some of the estimates are about half about 50 percent of the the mass shooters die um by suicide uh during the mass shooting and you know i i I gotta say so that's that's the interesting part is so it it becomes this um what what the data what people are trying to figure out is you know what's what separates people who are at risk for suicide only versus people who are at risk for suicide and you know for murder suicide um and i i was lucky to uh, i i did a review of a book that i suggested which is called the myth of martyrdom by adam lankford who is a criminologist in uh the university of alabama and he he has an interesting the, the book is he mostly con- you know he concentrates a lot of uh, on on terrorism and specifically on suicide ter- and suicide bombers and suicide terrorism, um, and he tackles a lot of kind of um, myths and misunderstandings on what we think about people who commit uh, mass mass terrorism and die by suicide during those attacks, because the the conventional wisdom had been before is that um, what some people had deemed as like these are kind of like elite soldiers basically going into 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 a mission and they are so committed to the mission that they are willing to die for it. And in a, in a kind of deep dive in the biographies of a lot of these uh, attackers uh, worldwide, what he found was a very high rate of uh, psychopathology among them, you know, ranging from major mood disorders to in some cases even psychotic disorders. And what he's proposing is that, you know, what the, the difference between people who are engaging um, mass murder and suicide and suicidal people may not be that much because they, they seem to be affected by mental illness um as well if you will and uh, then it becomes important to try to figure out you know why why is it that some of them are willing then to kill other people 
uh, as part of their their suicide um, attempt or completion um, or their suicide death. So um, in that in, for that particular well, I, and and I and I know that um, your your manager you know, Thomas has actually written a little bit about murder suicide. So maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, what he how he. Has he adapted his theory to talk a little bit about murder suicide, and then maybe I can talk a little bit more about Langford and and what I think about these attacks? Well, Joyner's book is called The Perversion of Virtue, and it's about understanding murder suicide. He calls it the perversion of virtue because he believes that murder suicides. And now I'm just reading from the book description here, mm, so mm-hmm. um, that murder suicide always involves. The wrong-headed invocation of one of four interpersonal virtues, mercy, justice, duty, and glory. So he believes that the person is is suicidal, but also has some kind of idea that they're doing something virtuous, mm-hmm. mapping onto one of those those qualities by killing others. So maybe they think that they're either they're sparing people from something, or they think they're carrying out justice, or whatever it might be. And he kind of goes through some different public cases and, and reasons through that and, and builds his his hypotheses from there. Yeah. And so what what strikes me is that, uh, yeah, because in, if you think about people who engage in terrorism or mass terrorism and die, and died during those attempts, is that there's always invocate, you know, as he says, invocations to some kind of virtue. So either kind of a glory or you're doing it for either your fellow uh, man, however, it might, however that may be defined, or for a political cause or a religious cause of some sort, um, and so there's this perversion, perhaps, of that of that cause. What uh, what Langford is proposing is that uh, these terrorist groups may take advantage of people who are already vulnerable in order to use them for propaganda and also to achieve tactical tactical objectives. Um, but that these people are not particularly different. So as as we're talking, it, it strikes me that here in the U.S., where um, we see, we we tend to have a higher rate of you know this seemingly random um, uh, mass shootings. But then when we start digging into the biographies of the people who 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 engage in them, we find that these people are in many in many cases they have serious psychopathology. Um, but, and in other cases, they may not have serious psychopathology in the way that we, the, the, you know, the average public may think about it, like a major psychotic disorder. But nonetheless, they do have a history of some sort of disorder that most psychologists would recognize. Yeah. That's kind of controversial, isn't it? Because isn't aren't yeah. there some people that claim that there it, it's not that mental health is not a big factor yeah. in her. Yeah, and I think that's that's why I, I try to be yeah, that's a good point. And I, I probably didn't highlight it well enough before, but I think it's it's not a mental illness in the sense of how many people would conceive it, which would be like a major depressive disorder or a psychotic disorder. And there's a really there's an there's an interesting paper, I can't remember the author, but essentially he talks about how taking, you know, take it, and I, the title of it is basically Taking guns away from the mentally ill will not reduce mass shootings. And that is because he's talking about people who have major mental illness. So bipolar disorder, uh, even major depressive disorder, psychotic disorders. Those individuals actually are more likely to be victims of violent crime rather than perpetrated. However, when we take a broader view of psychopathology and psychological disorders, 
and we inc- and we include other disorders and we should say current modern um, conceptualization of psychological disorders we tend to think about them as a spectrum right so like there is uh, mild moderate and severe levels of different disorders and that these disorders um, the ones that are in the, in the more moderate to mild range could cross into 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 the more severe range uh, we look at other disorders like personality disorders and uh, in some cases even um, autism spectrum disorders we see some of those those disorders starting to appear more frequently among the biographies of those people who have committed mass shootings. So in the case of, for example, Adam Lanza, who was the shooter at um, the, uh, in the elementary, so not the elementary, the, the, uh, the kindergarten in, in Connecticut, he had a pretty well-documented history of um, an autism spectrum disorder. While And that may have contributed to his fascination with guns, his fascination with um, mass shooters and uh, that contribute that 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 obsessive quality uh, that is also a part that of many people who engage in in mass shootings that they seem to develop a fascination obsession with previous people who have committed mass violence uh, and so in that in his case perhaps that autism spectrum disorder may have contributed to it that doesn't mean that all people who have autism spectrum or autism spectrum disorder disorders um, are going to be more likely to be mass shootings we're just saying that in this case that's a contributing factor and i think and i if i if i may say this part of the part of the difficulty of this area of research and and public policy is that the public and all of us right we want to find the reason why somebody did that right like why did they do this and we try to think about one one reason to it that explains it but that's difficult because humans are so complex right and there are multiple factors that contribute to to behavior in general and certainly for something as complex and difficult as mass shooting so it would be we can think about mental illness writ large as a component but not the explanatory factor of it or the the main mediator if that makes sense yeah i i think that's a really great point because in discussions we've had about this one of the really difficult things that has come out is when there is this media sweeping generalization or idea that mental illness causes violence, then it can it can be really perpetuate stigma, it can reduce right. people seeking help right. and all of that. And and that's different from what you're saying, which is looking at the whole all of the pieces of the puzzle, there may be certain thinking patterns that are commonalities across these incidents. Yeah, and I have to say, as we as we have been talking about the, this show, and we try to be, you know, we try to be very careful and nuanced on on our, on our approach to to topics that we choose, and this one is particularly fraught for a variety of reasons. In the United States, when you talk about mass shootings and mass suicide, oh, mass shootings, yeah, mass shootings in general, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, it it becomes very quickly becomes um, understandably so very um political in many cases because people immediately associate you know one of the solutions that always people are pointing towards is uh, whether we should have gun control and that immediately raises like for people and then the other side people are going to be saying that we need more mental health screenings and mental health um solution or mental health uh available for people who are vulnerable and that is that would be true and helpful but then there's nuance within that 
and within the 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 din of not the din but you know that cacophony of the of that discussion we kind of just lose um sight of how do we get ourselves out of this the situation or problem because both sides try to kind of score points with the data that are available and to be fair there has been a concerted effort in many ways to reduce the amount of data that are available in this area are you talking about um congress's ban yeah. on gun violence research that's right yeah. right, right right yeah and until recently mm-hmm. which is you know it's it's on it's uh kind of unthinkable to think about unthinkable but it's uncanny or an interesting phenomenon is that congress put uh, a prohibition to give uh, federal dollars for the, the for certain types of uh, gun research you know anything that could indict guns as a causal factor for uh for this type of phenomenon which is problematic because you know guns are certainly a part of it because they are the medium by which these um these attacks are perpetrated and and it should be and you know to be nuanced it should be said that there have been attacks elsewhere in the world in which a person can get, engages in mass violence and they do not use a gun right so there is that and i imagine fewer people die or are seriously harmed in those cases on average you know that, that's a good question it just depends right so if it's mm-hmm. a person there's been some stabbings but if, you, if i think about for example the attack in nice in france when the the attacker used a, a truck mm-hmm. uh, it was mm-hmm. highly lethal you know they just picked a public avenue and then just killed a lot of people mm-hmm. and there's of course explosions which are also highly deadly so it just it really depends i think to mm-hmm. me what it, what is interesting to think about is it seems like so we have a group of people who are suicidal and die by suicide but are not willing to kill others right and then there's other people right, who the vast die by, majority right exactly the vast majority and there's a subset that may engage in murder suicide um and may kill other people but they do people who they may they may know right so their family members or uh you know a, a relationship that ends badly or is going badly so you can think of the archetype as a father who is going through a divorce and kills his former uh, or current you know they're going through a divorce and then kills himself the children or kills the wife uh children and then himself but nobody else outside of that uh, and then we see people who have these high levels of what i would you know what the data seems to be suggesting is misanthropy is that how you say it that, that sounds right, right to me. Misanthropy, right? Yeah, misanthropy in which they... I've only ever heard it in the version of misanthropic, so I haven't. Right. So I think that's right. It could be misanthropy or misanthropy. Uh, insurance, insurance, misanthropy. So they're very misanthropic, uh, and um, they see they 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 pick a target that they believe uh, has <clears throat> has either wronged them or the need to pay for some reason personally in and in, in the CIA and the secret actually the secret service uh, not the CIA the secret service has uh put out a, a white paper on this stuff looking at characteristics of people who engage in this kind of mass shootings when one of the the terms that they use is they, they call them like um grievance collectors so these are these people who kind of go around and they see other people that have wronged them and then they need to kind of avenge themselves for it. And one of the archetypes of that would be people perhaps like one of the more um, prominent, I guess we want to use that word, infamous uh, cases, which is the Columbine shooters who kind of had disagreements that they had collected among their schoolmates. And uh, also uh, perhaps Elliot Rogers, the I Love East, uh, 
um, shooter who, despite having a lot of protective factors, and not only just protective factors, but actually being quite privileged, he he carried this deep misogyny, and he felt like he was owed. He couldn't understand why uh, women would not pay attention to him, and he felt like he was owed um, sex, quite frankly, mm-hmm. and went into this rampage um, in in Southern California. So that it, the distinct, you know, it, it's trying to figure out what pushes, you know, when I think about it, pushes or what separates people who go into that one category versus another one. Another one is it's one that is that is spurring a lot of research and is definitely one that I am uh, I'm very interested in. And what it, my, my thoughts on it is that I think that I, uh, vulnerable narcissism may play a big role. And that was the comment that I did for Adam Langford's book. Uh, which I highly recommend. I really think it's it's interesting, it's provocative, and um, it uh, it provides a nice framework to think about this uh, this type of attacks. Is that um, some of these attacks, the the people who say that people who have mental disorders are not engaging in these behaviors, and to a degree they have they have a point. But on the other hand, uh, these people are not necessarily happy. These are not happy-go-lucky people who are stable. Uh, they are troubled in many ways, just not in the way that we tend to think of on the legal definition. What would that would qualify for a qualify? What would be called in forensic settings a qualifying mental disorders for like as like a severe psychotic disorder, um, but rather they have personality disorders um, that may allow them to function in society, kind of just be under the radar in many ways until they decide to commit the attack. I appreciate you talking about that. I, I have two questions. One, if um, would you mind explaining more about vulnerable narcissism? And two, yeah, also want to say uh, because as like you said, as we're trying to be uh, balanced in talking about this, uh, personality disorders are often stigmatized. Are there specific ones though that you tend to see, or certain characteristics? Is it mostly narcissistic that you tend to see? Um, through reading Langford's book that tends to be linked to mass shootings? Well, no, actually, oh. in his case, he actually, he, that, that was my, my suggestion to him. To my, oh, my I suggestion see. that he should consider vulnerabilism, but he actually found, that's, that's the thing, he actually found people who would have um, depression, psychotic disorders. So what we think about the average, um, not the average, but the, the, the qualifying mental disorder, um, personality disorders can and are oftentimes stigmatized and it, so maybe we can talk about narcissistic traits probably would be kind of you, you, in, um, in for the listeners who are familiar with our show they may have listened to when we talked about um, whether Donald Trump should have been diagnosed for example we talked a lot about narcissism but narcissism in essence is a uh, is characterized by an inflated sense of self-esteem uh, grandiosity uh, entitlement and exploitiveness while at the same time, a subset of these individuals also have uh, underneath what we would consider kind of underneath that's that that facade of uh, grandiosity. They have this very uh, fragile self-esteem. Every day they are very they react very badly to criticism and uh, people would say like deep inside they tend to they 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 know that they are nothing compared to others so um some for example it, looking at the reading of the writings uh which were voluminous of the of the columbine shooters uh you can see examples of that so both dylan and uh eric um they both 
taught, you know, wrote at length and how they felt superior to others, and they kind of talk about being considering themselves gods compared to other people. While at the same time, oftentimes in the same page, they would say that they hated being so insecure and how they were easily um, um, intimidated by others and they hated the way they looked. So that that kind that 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 unstable sense of self-esteem. Um, seems to be pretty prevalent among some of the of, of the shooters, certainly among Columbine, definitely on Elliot Rogers. And I, I actually have students, uh, my, a current student of mine, a dissertation student, and she's finishing her project on, she did uh, an analysis of the writings of the manifestos of a lot of these writers, of, of the people who have engaged in mass shootings in North America. And one of the themes that are that are emerging, she's not completed, she kind of presented me some of the 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 preliminary findings and as she's organizing the themes we're kind of trying to figure out um what, what's coming out uh certainly kind of misanthropy is one of them so people very much kind of have this kind of intense hate uh, and it tends to be towards a group and oftentimes it could be along things like racial um so it could be against other groups uh like racial groups or it could be against women for for sure misogyny is an element and in addition, they tend to have this core of narcissism, this um, sense that they are above others, but at the same time, they feel inferior, uh, among other things. That's really interesting. How yeah. I'm just curious, how was that research process done in terms of identifying themes? Yeah, that's a good question. It's one of the things that uh, you and I probably were not uh, trained on it because it's qualitative research. Mm-hmm. But it's it, I've been becoming more in, more involved in it and learning more about it here. And essentially, is using going through the the writings of uh, you can you do it you know two ways. In qualitative research, people can look for themes themselves, or they look at keywords. So they start uh, they start um, selecting words that appear often. So for example, hate or women or whatever, and then you start putting them into categories after coding them. So you code for those words and you put them and you start uh, put them into a category, and then you get another rater that looks at the words, like keywords, and say, you know, whether you see if you find some kind of agreement. And you can also use software uh, that looks for, for example, you know, have you have you done an award cloud analysis? Or like whenever you put in uh, a writing of somebody, you put in an award. You probably have seen award clouds on like on Facebook or on people just put in like oh hope and happiness. And when you look at a, at, a, at a document of some sort, or they analyze the this, like I saw one recently. Uh, award cloud of um, an analysis of the the speeches by Angela Merkel in Germany, and you know how often does the word Germany, how often does the word Europe appear, how often does the word st- stability uh, or COVID appear in the past year, and then it shows a diagram in which you see a representation of how you know a, the word if it was if the word Germany appeared more often, so it's larger within the word cloud compared to other words. So that's another way in which we are doing it. So she kind of taking, she took it both. Uh, she read through the manifestos herself and started looking kind of like, okay, what what are some of the themes that I'm picking up? What are the things that are jumping out? And started writing some of the those themes uh, and putting them into categories after coding the words. And then had another grad student uh, go through them and see if they had kind of integrated reliability. It's incredibly uh exhaustive i mean it really is it's uh it's it's a it's a different approach but it's really interesting and it, and it's kind of the only way I, I thought we could analyze um written documents right 
in in your area they they they, they do that in suicide when it whenever they analyze the the suicide note people suicide notes right and see kind of the themes that arise that's kind of they do it right I, yeah I think it's I think it's a valuable research method to look to look at like you said kind of looking reading through the themes and and generating ideas and and writing about them and analyzing them that way. Thanks for explaining that. I think that's a really interesting approach. Yeah, it's neat. I really am looking forward to it. I've, I've never, <laughs> I've never not, I just, I didn't, you know, I was not, we were not trained into in qualitative system, but it's really interesting and uh, learning more about it. The more I learn about it, I'm like, oh my God, I don't know if I, I, I could do it on my own because it looks, it, it's, it looks intense. So for people who engage in these mass shootings who may not have uh, a what we consider a typical psychological disorder, like a psychotic disorder, they may have these elevated narcissistic traits that puts them at risk for this kind of um, this kind of behavior. So, what were some of the main themes that you found in, in looking through those what, manifestos? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, the manifestos. Yes, yeah, she went through manifestos and videos as well of, of some of the mass shooters. So, what she found, uh, kind of an overarching theme, and we. Uh, the, the way she wrote it, she has social, cultural, and political influence, and uh, kind of toxic masculinity hatred. And I actually told her that I'm, I'm not so sure about uh, the toxic masculinity label for a variety of reasons. Um, but to me, when I looked at the sub themes that are, that appeared, it was it was more it was more about um, it seemed like misanthropy, just kind of this really intense hate about things. And but related to there, there is certain there is certainly a, a level of 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 something associated with masculinity, which to me seemed like it was a frustrated, a level of frustrated physical dominance, sexual and physical dominance. So a lot of these mass shooters were very concerned about the fact that somehow other men were able to have girlfriends or have sexual conquests and they weren't, and how their women not respond to their advances because they are so great, while at the same time saying. Gosh, I wish I was better looking. I wish I was better. No, I didn't have so much social anxiety. So I'll live with that. And then. So that, it's that, that combination of like entitlement, but also mm-hmm. like unsafe esteem. Yeah. It, yeah. It, a sense of, uh, yeah, an inflated, an, an unstable, inflated sense of self esteem uh, that you know, oscillates between very high and very low self esteem uh, and entitlement. Absolutely. And also, you know, that unstable self-esteem may be then kind of aimed at other people in general, other groups. And so she also found a sub a sub theme of like what she what she is deeming fragility, and within it, kind of themes of narcissism, hypersensitivity, but also depression, and also kind of so what she said called social comparison, like envy and injustice, kind of this this feeling of feeling wronged by others. That's a little bit what the this, the Secret Service um, white paper talks about is kind of this collection of injustices. So like all this, everybody else in the world has a much better break than me, and then therefore people in the world must pay for it. And another something that that kind of seems to be appearing is ten, what she calls tension, and uh, this uh, dissonance, kind of putting a contradictory identities because they don't really know who they are, and they have all these cognitive distortions about the world. And they tend to kind of isolate from others and escape into a fantasy world sometimes in which they see themselves as masters. And if you look at the, I'll kind of refer to some of the archetypes. So the Columbine mass shooters, 
they spent a lot of time online and then they, they spent quite a bit of time doing essentially writing fiction of themselves as kind of being all powerful and just being in a very juvenile way but unfortunate which you know to a degree is some, somewhat normative um, but it also exists among the people who are adults and engage in, in these kind of behaviors and finally you have an, uh, kind of this sub theme of escalation in which they start kind of desensitizing themselves and engaging in a lot of violent fam violent fantasies and kind of testing for violence, kind of to start increasing the, the lethality, which I think fits a lot with um, the suicidology data that you're talking about, in which people start losing their fear uh, towards, you know, harming themselves. They also seem to be losing the fear towards not just harming themselves, but harming others, because on average, in general, most people have this, this uh, very, you know, do we have a reluctance to uh, hurt other people? And certainly to kill them, right? We kind of we seem, we seem to have an inhibition towards doing that. Absolutely, which is yeah. part of why I wonder, and I'm sure you've seen this in undergraduates too, but maybe also the popularity of like true crime podcasts. Mm. They're really interested in people who commit murder or who are antisocial, maybe because it's so opposite of so for so many of us. Fortunately, you know um, that's who we should really have a crossover show with them one day, honestly, because I I do really want to know more about what is it about people that drives that curiosity mm -hmm. about it. And actually, had a, I had a I had a Twitter exchange with somebody about uh, with Edelin Verona, who is a very well known psychopathy researcher about you know what is it about people that kind of have this fascination with um you know, those, those kind of very uh, violent characters, while at the same time, there are people who abhor violence, right? That's the interesting part. Absolutely, that they that there's some kind of fascination. I don't know. I think part of it, at least for some people, maybe is because it, it's so different from their own experience that it's hard to mm -hmm. imagine mm -hmm. feeling that way. That's what I like to think. That's what anyway. I've heard, yeah. That's what I've heard from some of my students, actually, about it. They're like, this is... I can't wrap my mind around uh, why somebody would do something like that. So I kind of want to learn about it. So anyway, but and that agrees. And finally, kind of the last the last theme was uh, what she's calling explosion. Kind of underneath it, kind of sub themes is narcissistic rage or martyrdom and vengeance in which finally the person arrives at a point in which, OK, so I've been I've been wronged in the world. Uh, I am better than others, but I also feel bad about myself. They try to go. Uh, overcompensate and they start desensitizing themselves engaging more in these fantasies and eventually the day of kind of the, their day of retribution gets gets that in fact i am looking at her dissertation title and i never noticed it before and i think it's great <laughs> the, the the title is my day of retribution the role of culture hatred and narcissistic rage in mass casualty attackers wow that's yeah, a title I'm, that like captures all the themes in it right and the best part is that the running head on each of the papers is my day of retribution and i'm like brianna do you have any plans for for the for the defense what's going on here yeah perhaps perhaps <laughs> she should pick some other just, words for the running head yeah running head my day <laughs> just of so no one gets the wrong idea <laughs> yeah so that is that's like that's a great title and that is exactly what it is we're looking because we were looking we were very interested in seeing how does how does culture how does the the, the cultural milieu uh, play a role in it? Because we don't see these types of mass attacks in some other cultures, um, in which perhaps um, uh, competition or availability to guns or you know however you want to however you want to conceptualize it, it certainly doesn't happen as often. And kind of trying to figure out 
some some of those factors is what drove this dissertation, which I am really looking forward to to it being finished. Yeah, what a great contribution. Mm. Yeah, so I I I as we're talking about this stuff, I it's easy to find a lot of the um a, a lot of the, the 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 risk factors and the things that drive to people, but one of the things that is perhaps most difficult, and we have a lot of difficult we were talking earlier is we get stuck on you know what how how do we solve this problem right because it is it's it's so it's so big and the um, the what I noted earlier which was like a, you we get lost in this cacophony and people who's like when you take guns away from everybody and people who are of course pro gun are gonna say no that's not gonna happen we and then the the, the solution that is proposed is we should just provide better mental health screenings or mental health uh, mental health um, interventions. Uh, and yet, neither of us can attend to occur, and we've had decades in which we have we continue having year this year after year. Which is just heartbreaking. I mean, it's right. just devastating. The Parkland shooting. I grew up in the neighboring city mm. to Parkland, and my um, just Gosh, so yeah. I I return back there, and it's still. I mean, it's just as is understandable. It just continues to have significant mental health, negative mental health impacts on people who were involved, who had loved ones that were affected. And it's just, it's devastating, including people who later went on to die by suicide. They were at the school Mm -hmm. that day or who had friends struggling Mm -hmm. with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so it is, it's just, it's so painful Mm -hmm. that there hasn't been more action done on the suggested fronts so yeah, that's a great point. Better gun control and improving mental health care, which are right. always, I mean, I'm always for improving mental health care, but, um, right. you know, it's its painful to see that. I And I want to kind of just highlight that point that you just made, which is important, is that oftentimes we don't think about the lasting scars and problems that remain afterward, right? So not only is it the people who die or wounded or maimed during that are directly affected by it, but it actually affects the whole community at large. And there are data actually that there. It just reminded me of a paper um, that was written looking at the effects, you know, the, the incidence of PTSD and PTSD-like symptoms uh, after a few, you know, years or months of the Virginia Tech shooting. And uh, you could, you know, you can measure that that even though people who were not directly affected by the shooting um, had um, sequelae from it. So that that is also a great point. So this is why um, maybe thinking about these events as a uh, as a public health uh, problem might be perhaps a solution for it. Yeah, I think that one of the points that you've made in the past when we've talked about this that's really important is that it it undermines a sense of safety mm-hmm. and even that that affects people greatly and and that's that's a big deal that's a big worldview change to feel that vulnerability and that lack of safety yeah yeah for sure i think what i have to say that i have i haven't done a 180 but i when i first started i remember being in gosh uh well i was still in grad school but when did uh no i was Probably because in North Carolina, when the uh, the the shooting in Connecticut occurred at the um, the pre uh, the Adam Lanza, well yeah the pre K what was the name of that pre K the pre K of Sandy Hook Sandy Hook right so I was in North Carolina during the Sandy Hook 
mass shooting. And I remember at the time, if you were to ask me what's the solution for this, I would have said gun control. Um, absolutely. And after that mass shooting, it, and you know, there was no gun control measures that occurred. And in fact, they were actually loosening of restrictions of that. I it became very evident to me that that is just you know whether I think that's a solution or not. And I could say because look at Japan, you know, there's you know guns are very difficult to achieve to obtain there, and there is very little of these mass attacks. Um, that's it, it's it's almost um, it's unrealistic. It's it, that's just basically to me, the way I think about it is I don't think it's going to happen in the U.S. Period for a variety of reasons as as a culture as a country that is just not who we are. We have had uh, you know precedents within the you know in which we've seen who have been killed by by civilians and even that did not spur mass uh you know the uh, gun control so i don't think having these events are going to change those uh, those laws so i started thinking more about you know what would be a, a way to a different approach to it um and uh and 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 i am persuaded by some other data that uh, and I just looked up that article that I was mentioning before, and it's called. If you remember, I'll we can probably link it by Bostwick from 2013, uh, which is taking guns away from the mentally ill won't uh, won't eliminate mass shootings, which is basically the point is that you know that may reduce a few, but the reality is that the people who the majority of people who are severely mentally ill are more likely to be victims of, of um, violent crime rather than be perpetrators so i started thinking about more the phenomenology of that and i started thinking a lot about the um, the suicide literature actually maybe yeah so i started thinking a lot about the 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 who, the who guidelines and maybe this is this is your area can you talk a little bit about some of the guidelines for the reporting of uh, of suicide and where those come from yeah so the world health organization guidelines for media reporting on suicide talk about taking the opportunity to educate the public about suicide, avoiding language, and we'll link to these in the show, show notes too, that sensationalizes suicide or presents it as a solution to problems. Um, they suggest avoiding prominent placement and undue repetition of stories about suicide. I'm not exactly 100% sure what that means. Well, so, yeah, I think basically, they, so I started thinking, I actually have to give credit what credit is due, and then there's this other little podcast uh, called Freakonomics that, you know, they may have one or two <laughs> listeners, not quite psychodrama levels. But how many do they have from Iceland? <laughs> That's the real question, exactly. Are they in the top 200 downloaded podcasts in Iceland? Probably, I don't think so. But... <laughs> Probably, but we're not going to see where, where they rank compared to us there. Uh, but I, so I was listening and it, and it was about, it was, the, the, I believe the episode was called The Paradox of Suicide. And he was talking a lot about um, suicide. You know, they talk. They interviewed some suicidologists uh, in the area, and they looked about you know cross-cultural approaches or cultures in which there is higher rates of suicide, and looking at why other. You know, if, if we talk about Japan, for example, so I can talk, we can talk about Japan, for example, in in the fact that there is not a lot of mass shootings, for example, but they have very high rates of suicide, and so does Korea. So even though they have a high level of um, technological development and they are you know there are an economic economically more prosperous nations they have high rates of suicide and that that interesting paradox um, and one uh, one of the suicidologists interviewed talked about 
something called the Papageno effect and the, the Werther effect and the Papageno effect, um, which are ba basically referred to the contagion effects, right? And um, this is actually something that I had heard um, Thomas Joyner, your your major professor, talk about in one of our in our in our suicide seminar that we we talked about this contagion effect that occurs when a person who is prominent uh, dies, which I, at the time I, I didn't know it occurred, right? So whenever somebody who, who is prominent, who is uh, like Elvis, when, wait, wait, who is a, a prominent person that there's been a contagion effect with? Um, there's been or, some or, or, debate or about Marilyn, uh, some debate about whether suicides increase after Marilyn Monroe or Robin Williams. But uh, so, but not and not just suicides, but also just deaths, right? So if there was a if there was a prominent death, I think the the, the example that I thought was that after the death of Elvis Presley, the the number of suicides increased, um, and so there's and there's a contagion effect also in whenever there's a suicide like at a high school, then there seems to be a cluster of suicides. Is that correct? It's this is oh, gonna <laughs> you you know what I'm gonna say it. It's complicated. So ah. there have there have been. I think that it's one other way to look at it is that there's potentially if someone dies by suicide in like a friend group or something like that, then if the friend group is kind of share some common characteristics mm, and mm -hmm. a stressful right. event losing sense. someone that it could make them more vulnerable to suicide so the contagion kind of as you're suggesting was just more like you see a model of someone dying by suicide and maybe it's it increases the capability for suicide going back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode because they've seen someone else do that. Another way to look at it is, and including with celebrity deaths, that maybe that's a stressful event for someone who's already vulnerable or at risk in some ways because of things in their life. So it's it's actually a little bit of, um, I think it's, it's, a, it's so complex that it's hard to understand. But yes, that is definitely, we do see sometimes clusters um, where multiple people die by suicide within a certain period of time in a, in a certain location. Got it. Okay, so so there is some evidence of contagion at at kind of the at the local level, especially if people are vulnerable. You know, they're friends with vulnerable vulnerable person, and then there's also this kind of evidence of contagion at a larger society societal level, in which people who may somebody who may be prominent or the person may admire. They, they there's a there's an increase on suicides thereafter at the societal level so that is detectable among people who may be vulnerable and so what uh, what this suicidologist was talking about is was a rash of suicides in Austria that people started jumping in front of the train as as the method of suicide and as the, as as one as as the first suicide occurred then there were reports on the media about it and they were very explicit and gory and kind of just all detailed filled and then all of a sudden more more and more people started engaging in suicidal behavior and dying in the same fashion uh, at that time so a group of suicidologists at the time um said that the way that the that the suicides were being reported were being uh, were actually were acting as a as a catalyst for more suicides, and so as I as I started looking into those data, I I was struck by how uh, there's been some suggestion and there's a there's a lot of suggestion by prominent psychiatrists or people who looked in, into this area 
that one of the people, one of the things that a lot of these mass shooters are looking for is um, attention and ignominy. Ignominy? No, no, no. Uh, let's well, let's use a different word because uh, I don't even know. I know how to I know how to write all these words, but I'm not so sure how to say them sometimes. Um, I'm not sure either. Infamy, but, but different. Yeah, you mean? Yeah, like infamy. I know how to pronounce that one. So <laughs> no, I know I know what word you mean. You're right. I have yeah, yeah. That aloud though. Right. Only it's one of those it. that you only write in order to pass the jury. <laughs> and so, but the certain, what they're looking is for notoriety. So that's another thing that jumps out for a lot of these, the manifestos is that they seem to be preoccupied with notoriety. And unfortunately, the Columbine shooters have become a template for a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the subsequent shooters. And oftentimes it's the manifestos of some of the shooters. They say that they want to outdo they call them my shooters and they, and they kind of fantasize a lot of this and the theme that I was mentioning that my student found uh, a lot of the kind of the retreating to fantasy of their own. Part of that fantasy is thinking about how they're going to be re- be talked about and for how long uh, in the media. And so what this Austrian um, what, uh, what the Austrian um, uh, researchers proposed was that they should uh, not. Uh, report the suicides in the way they were in. So they sh- it should not be front page news. It should definitely not have the names and not a lot of the details, but just very bare bones, very um, without any glorification, you want to put it that way, in a good way, the glorification of of suicide. And after the cha- the reporting of the suicide changed, there was a reduction in the number of suicides. And I think that uh, that's kind of the group the the group that also influenced the the, the World Health Organization um, guidelines on how to report suicide. Not that it shouldn't be reported, but do it in a way that is not going to be harmful. In period, so I I started wondering about whether we could start adopting some of those same recommendations and adapt them for the U.S. in the way we report uh, mass shootings. Because currently, um, I would, you know, I and other people have argued that they are iatrogenic. They tend to cause cause more harm than good because they do exactly what some of the mass shooters are looking for, which is provide a lot of attention. Well said. I mean, I think that I think that one of the issues that comes up with suicide, too, is this idea of um, not wanting to stigmatize suicide, wanting to talk about it openly, but also balancing it with how it might affect other people, like like you're saying. And so I the other effect that's emerged. So you're talking about the Werther effect Mm -hmm. is now I do not know how to pronounce the other word, but the other effect is an alternative way that you propose could be useful in talking about mass shootings and in, in journalism, right? Right, the Papageno effect. Yes. The Papageno effect, so it refers to the opposite of the Werther effect, or the so rather than a contagion, so you can be perhaps think about it as a, as a contagion for good. So rather than uh, talking about uh, the suicides as, you know, the person was hopeless or there was no solution, which essentially engaging in the same kind of cognitive distortions that suicidal people may already have, use the, the news stories to reach out to people who may be having the same thoughts and provide them with resources and uh, with news stories of um, 
people who had previous crises, but they were able to surpass them and that the situations are not hopeless and there are resources and there is hope for people to have it. So I, that is actually one of the interventions that in some cases I actually have seen that has been started to being implemented is that oftentimes when there are stories about um, suicides in the news, you will see either at the end, and certainly that certainly is in the case of podcasts, and we'll do it on this one, is that people, um, they, they they put a link to uh, the 1-800-273-27, well, now I know, 273-TALK. The National talk. Suicide Prevention Lifeline, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, 1-800-273-TALK. Did you hear the song that was made about that phone number by the rapper no, Logic? No, yeah. tell me about that. It's, he, it's just... A song about he struggled with suicidal thoughts, and so he. Wait, who is this? Logic. Oh, is the rapper's wait, name. Hear about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, yeah, one eight hundred two seven three talk. But we'll wait, so yeah, logic. drop a couple of bars. Try. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Go ahead, G. I appreciate you creating the beat, but I am I'm no rapper. I'm a rap. Fan and observer, but not um, a rapper myself. Rapper. <laughs> I don't know. I say it. People don't know this, but uh, you are quite uh, the sinister at uh, in the underground rap scene in South Florida in the 1990s. <laughs> I do love the hip hop, but I can't create the hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's exactly that's right. Because didn't he perform that at the Grammys? Yeah, and it was very powerful yeah, because very there were received. a lot of suicide attempt survivors and other right. people impacted by suicide present in the performance of it. Precisely. That's a perfect example. And in fact, that's what some of the epidemiologists epidemiology and suicidologists have proposed, is that after the death of Kurt Cobain, he uh, there was a lot of that concern that because of his suicide and he was so well loved by uh, the you and you know he was such an icon of youth culture at the time that there would be this rash of suicides however uh what happened at the time is that uh and uh, mtv and other media outlets just started talking about how suicide was not a solution and how um his widow um Courtney love um went on tv saying for people who had you know who were experiencing this crisis that you know that there were alternatives to really seek that and so what they found they did they, looking at the data afterwards contrary to previous occasions in which there have been a, uh, you know a, a, a well-publicized famous suicide in kurt cobain's case that that ex, that effect was reversed so there was an actual reversal of the Werther effect and that's the Papageno effect in and as I think about it given that there is a portion of people who are suicidal uh who are also in having um homicidal ideation if if there is a way to reduce the number of to to use media in order to reduce the effect in the same way for people you know in, in a way that you want to think of people who if you are thinking about something like this please reach out and think and in fact there was one column that i found uh, a while ago and I, I think i have it saved somewhere in the washington post um somebody wrote a column saying you know i was one of those i when i was 15 i was suicidal and i was creating a plan that i was going to go do this thing and i was going to kill a lot of people and then kill myself however at the time luckily for me somebody reached out and helped me and then they, and here i am and i'm happy and i have a family and things Thankfully, I didn't do that. So if we were able to 
create a, a, a mass public intervention in which we de-glorify, if you will, um, these uh, the the way in which this these events are publicized. Uh, for example, by not naming that would be, I would say, maybe we can start it when, you know, unfortunately, as, as you mentioned before, these events occur for, far too frequently. So in Twitter, rather, you know, making sure that the, that the name of the shooter is not being, is not being broadcast or in the images of like all these images of kind of ambulances and people crying that the, the end, never ending loop of those images is not done. And instead there's a focus on um the event but more importantly on how to how to how to prevent it and give um resources for people who may be having uh crisis on where to reach out may actually reduce the number of um follow-up and and uh, mass suicides uh mass murder suicides um because there is data that seems to suggest that whenever these events occur and they're highly publicized we tend to have this contagion effect as well I really like how practical your proposal to this is. It's not saying that you're identifying there are a number of societal factors that are likely to have a big impact, but what is something that probably, hopefully most people could get on board with that could have a powerful effect. And and looking at reporting is an important way to do that. Um, Two things I'll mention, since we we like to look at nuance. One, mm-hmm. what is what is one of the arguments against that you could see, or do you think that most people across kind of political spectrum and different backgrounds would get on board with kind of aiming for the yeah, for the change in media reporting? That's a great question. I, I've thought about that, and I think well, one of them would be First Amendment, right? Is that we we have a right to report. Things and so that and and I I understand that it, it it is a form of censorship, but I think what we what I'm proposing is not as form of imposed censorship, but rather a way of you know standards. And with there we already have adopted multiple standards in professional media uh, on how we report things. You know people do you know, we we just don't take oh this person said that so we're just going to report that um, unless it's Fox News. I'm just kidding, Fox News. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, you know, in all seriousness, but you know, you know, there are journalistic standards that follow. So you have to have sources, and you have to vet your sources, and you're going to be checking, you know, that that sources' stories. And when they don't follow those those protocols, oftentimes mistakes occur. So I think it would be about self-adoption of professional standards, and, and I, I think there's other standards that I would love to see then are adopted elsewhere. Certainly in Europe, right? And we, I, I wouldn't say that Europe doesn't, you know, they're, they're, they're somehow less, have less freedom of speech because of this um, adoption of this standard. So that I can see that as, as a concern, but I would, I'm, I'm less concerned about it because of uh, it would be more voluntary and a, a more of a, so, as a social movement and, you know, journalistic ethical standards. So that would be one. Another one would be that, um, well, that maybe that, you know, it, the I would say that the um, the intervention takes away from you know what other people would say is like oh it takes away from the other solution like the actual problem well we solve the problem is taking away guns or whatever people's solution might be I'm like that that may be the case however because this is a multi-factorial problem I I would say this would if if it has if there is such a if there is a possibility of having a good effect 
that would take relatively little effort, why not have that public health intervention? And it's something that you know we do that they do in public policy and public health policy all the time is how do we find how do we have mass public interventions that might be relatively easy to easy to implement and have a large effect size or you know medium and it and it costs very little to implement. So why not? I don't know. You can can you think of any other kind of uh, objections or something else that people might have? No, those are the main ones, but you make a good point. It's not all or nothing, and you're not saying that all the other factors aren't important either. I sometimes think that's where the discussions or arguments become unproductive is when if you say, hey, let's change the reporting guidelines, and someone says, but that's not the real problem, whereas that's not what you're talking about. You're saying, hey, we really, it would be great to make changes in gun control, and that's important. And a lot of other Mm -hmm. factors are in there, too, but... Is there something that we can do that could make things better that is right. less that is more likely that we can make movement on quicker? And so I think that's really important. The one thing that I did want to throw out there that I that we had talked about before is that it's very difficult to empirically study these things and and the studies you've talked about are really important and interesting and we should link to that. They are because it's it's something right you don't uh you you look at an event after it occurs and how it affects and look at things like suicide rates or look at murder-suicide rates and things like that. But mm-hmm. we don't know all of the factors that could have played right. a role in those rates. And so when we're looking at media coverage and, and putting links in there, we're assuming that that's one of the things. And, and you can look across multiple different events and kind of get an idea of, of what the impact is. But one way that it was looked at by a group of researchers, some of them people that we went to graduate school with, including the first author is uh, Michael Nestis, and, and I'll link to this, but also includes, well, now I feel like I should name everyone. I don't want to leave anyone out, but there are like <laughs> 10 of them. So I think I'll, I'll just say Michael Nestis at all, at all. <laughs> but I will, I will be linking to it. And they, this is a really interesting study. What they did is they wanted to evaluate in an experimental way what is the impact of these reporting guidelines on subsequent risk for suicide. And so what they did is it was multi-site study at different college campuses and undergraduates. There were 273 students that were randomly assigned to read one of three articles. One of them was an article, a real article that violated suicide reporting guidelines because it's it talked about specifics about the method of suicide that the person used and um, in detail, I think it, it, it also mentioned the suicide note. So there were specific guidelines where that was violated. And the headline also said suicide was an epidemic. And often the guidelines recommend not using that kind of language that they, they, you don't suggest skyrocketing or epidemic with the fear that people will believe that um, will become hopeless when reading it or be at higher risk. And then, so they either read that article that violated the suicide reporting guidelines. They read the same article with those violating lines removed. So basically mm-hmm. the, those specific methods, or they were assigned to read an article that really goes into details about death by cancer. And they chose that because cancer used to have, a lot more stigma associated with it. And um, it goes into just as many details about death, but it's not 
it's not suicide and, and kind of it's looking at what makes suicide different than other types of deaths and how does this impact people. So essentially what they what they did is they looked at how they felt after reading the article and compared between the three groups. And then they looked at about a one month follow up. And mm-hmm. what they the the basic gist of what they found is that the the individuals who read the original suicide article did not appear to be any more upset immediately afterwards than the people who read the other two articles mm-hmm. or during the one month follow up among the participants who had previous suicidal ideation. Those who read the original article that violated those reporting guidelines reported actually a lower likelihood of a future suicide attempt relative to the other condition. So mm-hmm. what the authors talked about here is suggesting that some of the guidelines may actually not have not be as effective as people think that there might be some benefits from clear reporting and not obscuring certain things. However, they talk about limitations that it's an undergraduate sample that it's also, they didn't look at each guideline independently in different conditions. So they're not sure what it was. You know, there could be, some of the things that we've talked about, the other types of guidelines that the article didn't violate, that they could have a different impact. Right. Yeah, it's a tough. As I was, as you were reading it, I was thinking about it. I, you know, it may not have affected people right then, but it's also a re- retrospective follow-up a month later. So we don't know how they felt, you know, a week after or lately. So I don't know. I would have to look at the the full methods. Yeah, um, they did. They did. They looked immediately after and a month after, but you're right. They didn't right. look at like a week after right. or something like that. And also, as we talked about, one of the difficult things of studying is fortunately um, that murder suicides and mass shootings in terms of individuals are relatively small percentage. Mm-hmm. It's still too high and right. harms a lot of people. But if you're taking a sample of people, how many in that group are going to be vulnerable for that? That's that's hard to measure that way. Right. Yeah, and that's why I, I'm, I'm more, uh, you know, no, the study notwithstanding, I would say I'm, I would pay perhaps more attention to the data from more from larger from larger samples or epidemiological data, like the the look the study looking at the uh, the rates of suicide after Kurt Cobain's uh, the reporting of Kurt Cobain or in the Vienna the, the original Vienna studies that actually did find a reduction after changing the the way in which it was reported. Yeah, I right. I think that I think that they. I, I don't think this negates, but I think it's worth right. bringing this up. And part of the pushback against some of the guidelines is, like you said, sometimes it can feel like censorship to individuals, for example, who want to share their stories or about how mm. they were impacted. So the, the point that they make in this study and that is clear, like in common across the studies you you talked about, is highlighting edu- education, non-stigmatizing language um, resources and, and reasons for hope th- that are typically no harm to be found in that we would we would assume right yeah and it's you know it's not about censorship you know right right I guess the the way I would say it is you're not censoring I'm not saying don't report on it this is not uh, like you know during wartime in which there's actual censorship of how news are presented is that we're presenting the facts just in a way that is going to be more helpful rather than harmful. That I think is kind of the way to think about it. So you're not presenting in a way that glorifies the shooter. It doesn't provide. It doesn't give 
prominence to the shooter, but rather perhaps to the victims. And also just highlights one of the things that is not, it's seldom is presented is that there are way there is there are solutions to people's problems uh, that emotional distress and uh, it may be very difficult and painful. However, there are ways in which people can and often do work out. And I, I think about I don't remember the name. You, you'll know who I'm talking about. Is this um, he's a prominent uh, a- activist and um, he tried to commit suicide, but uh, that by suicide and from the Golden Gate Bridge. But he's now a, a mental health activist. Kevin Hines. Yes, right. So I, I think about a lot about his story, is that he uses his own personal story to kind of talk about how he was able to work a, uh, after after the attempt the, the attempt to overcome the adversities that he was going to attempt. Now he has a very happy productive life, and I, I would say highlighting more stories of people like that who have felt alienated um and then had perhaps thoughts of revenge uh kind of like a murder suicide but were able to work themselves out of it and however that is and highlighting those because those are you know I, I can only think of that one column that i mentioned earlier on the washington post and that this is certainly not the rule that i wish they would they were highlighted more often in in mass media yeah and i also should say i think that i I think when you're talking about mass shootings and violence and the reporting guidelines, to me, it's a lot clearer, at least my my speculation, like what is there to benefit from sharing the manifesto, sharing the pictures, showing Mm. a lot of that stuff versus talking frankly about suicide. To me, that's, that's pretty different, even though we've talked about there can be, there can be suicide in, in both cases. But to me, those are pretty different situations, right? Then if someone's talking, frankly, like, for example, when you were talking about Kevin Hines, part of the reason his story has been so compelling to people is because he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and is very frank about his mm, method. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't, but I don't think that takes away from his overall point, which is right. not that his life is perfect and not that he doesn't struggle, but that he, he has found ways to cope. He has found people who are supportive of him, but he doesn't hide his method that that was used at that time. So I think that to me, that's that's really different than perpetrating violence towards others. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example, right, is that you can talk about the event, you can give you know the facts of it, but you're not dwelling on 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 the uh, on 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 that aspect, but rather you're also highlighting other other more hopeful aspects which is probably what you want to do so yeah that you're that you're you're educating about it but it's not um it's not the kind of thing where it's just in the news you're seeing the manifesto you're seeing their videos repeatedly and it's hard to know what Mm -hmm. it's exactly to gain from that it's tough i I, you know the we get into what you talked about earlier which was People who do uh, who do have a fascination or interesting, and that, that is a it's, it's kind of a more disturbing trend, uh, I guess you want to think about it, is that there's all these groups online that have essentially fan groups, quite frankly, of people who are mass shooters, um, and uh, there's you know there's whole tumblers dedicated to the Columbine shooters, and interestingly enough, they're often done by adolescent girls, uh, and they're very it's 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 a really interesting phenomenon. And so I, that I don't know how to how to how to address, right? Um, because there is always going to be, as you mentioned, like podcasts that are dedicated to it. So there's a certain glorification that has always been a part. That I don't think we can get away from that at all 
because that's just part of the of the human nature to be interested in these kind of things. However, if there is a way in which we can um, modify some of the main the reporting and the sources of the of the of the data uh, or the sources of this information um, in a way it's presented from mainstream media, it may help reduce these effects. And I will say, I mean, as a person who studies this stuff, I mean, I'm interested in this area from a research perspective. I will say that oftentimes it is very helpful to because it's these data are you know. The, the news accounts are written, you know, they're there, they're readily available. And that is also helpful, right? So that would, that would be another counter. I mean, if I was to argue against myself, I would say, you know, if you do that, then you may be reducing the amount of information that you're going to be able to find in order to study this phenomenon. However, I would say that, um, you know, if, if what, what we found so far is that by reporting that way, we actually reduce the number of these events and reduce human suffering, that's probably worth it. I mean, that's good and that's great. And what, what we've had before, now, the data that we've had before it has allowed has allowed us to to reduce the number of incidents of these events, which is what we wanted to do in the first place. So, yeah, exactly right. And I and I think that another recommendation that you've suggested making along with that is re- working with mental health organizations to talk about the narrative that because that that ties together the facts and the way that things are reported because it is that's some of the context too, that it's, it's how the details are kind of laid out and, Mm -hmm. and, and that seems and how it affects people. And so I think that that's another piece of it. Right. And I guess we should clarify that when I said that I'm laying out, this is a paper that I'm been writing for the past. And I just looked at the first time I was inspired to write about this. I wrote a blog post on 2015 was the first time after the uh a shooting here in oregon quite in a in a junior college and then there was another one at the orlando the the pulse shooting in orlando and then that kind of propelled me to write this paper and i have had students do their dissertations and some papers on it so continuing this area so yeah hopefully we'll be able to publish this paper with the full recommendations soon it looks good in draft form i (laughs) I got to read it so these are complicated and, and distressing issues for sure. And I think there are things that we need to continue to to work on together as a society to figure out how to help them. Um, if you are struggling with suicidal thoughts or someone you know is, you as we mentioned before, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. And in the U.S., you can text HOME to 741741 and connect with a crisis counselor at the crisis text line. Those links will be in our show notes as well. Great. Yeah. Thank you.